All right. They're giving uh, the message out without the answers. I told Jen, don't put the answers down at the bottom of the page because the people just cheat. Just cheat. So the giant of worry, we're going to look at John 14, verse 27. And we're looking at different verses tonight. John 14, 27. If you were here last Wednesday, how many were in the class last Wednesday? All right, a great number of you. I had toothpicks, and I had one toothpick and a bundle of 30 toothpicks. And uh, the toothpicks represented a day. And uh, what was the lesson of the toothpicks? Who was here last, last Sunday? All right, Lorna, what was the lesson of the toothpicks? You can handle one day at a time. You can break the one, but you couldn't break the 30, right? So sufficient for the day is the evil thereof. Take no thought for tomorrow. As your days are, so shall your strength be. And we like to borrow. My mom always, would always say that. Don't borrow trouble, Tim. You know, what we like to do that. We think on down the line. And the grace of God is not there. The grace of God is not there for two years down the road. Right for today, it'll be available then for you, right? But anyway, so John 14, 27 says this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So Jesus promises peace. He's going to leave peace with us, which I believe comes in the presence of the Holy Spirit. He gives us his peace, not as the world gives. So what type of peace does the world give as compared or contrasted to the peace that Jesus gives? Not as the world gives. So what kind of peace does the world give? Shout out an answer there. Excuse me? Conditional peace. Very good. Excuse me? Imperfect peace. Conditional, imperfect what was that? Temporary peace. Fake peace. Is that what you said? A cessation of hostility type of peace. And obviously that isn't necessarily peace, isn't it? We like a cessation of hostility, but that doesn't mean there's real peace there. And then the peace that God gives you, the peace that Jesus gives you, is the type of peace that he carried around with him on this earth. My peace I give to you. And so you see Jesus walking this earth, coming into all kinds of situations and circumstances and relational uh, issues and things, and he always had the peace of God. He had the peace of God in a storm. He had the peace of God when he was betrayed. He had the peace of God when they were trying to kill him. He had the peace of God in a busy day. He had the peace of God knowing when he walked this earth that at the end of his journey there was the cross, Right? Jesus was not fretting the entire time, those 30 years he was down here on this earth. And then when he did, when he did, when that day, that moment was looming, what did he do? He went to God in prayer. Not my will, but yours be done. Angels came and strengthened him. He found that inner resolve and inner peace. Am I right about that? So Jesus gives us his peace so that when we're in a storm or we're facing relational conflict, or we're going through great challenge, or we know down the line there's going to be a, a real obstacle, we can just move in God's peace. Amen to that? Peace. Peace. Praise the Lord. So Mark Penn, who is a Democratic pollster, 
talked about the anxiety of America as a perfect storm. So as he's polling Americans, and he does so for the Democratic Party, as he's polling Americans, he realized that Americans are fearful of a great many things right now. And he calls it like a perfect storm. He says, and as I go through this, I want you to tell me which one of these concerns you or worries you the most, all right? He says, uh, it's like the nuclear threat of the 60s. I don't know if you remember the nuclear threat of the 60s, but I remember having uh, drills when I was in grade school of hiding underneath my desk and covering my head because of an atomic bomb going to be dropped. Anybody ever remember that? Old enough to, yes. So the nuclear threat of the 60s, the inflation worries of the 70s. Remember the inflation worries of the 70s? Uh, Richard Nixon and his, his wage and price controls to try to get a handle on inflation. The crime concerns of the 80s and 90s, I went to New York City in the 80s, and we went down to Times Square, and uh, it was a place of peep shows and triple X movies, and it wasn't a place for families at all. Well, we would take the bus or ride the subway, and uh, we'd have to be so careful because crime was such a huge problem in the city. And then it, it got cleaned up and became a very safe place. But now, not just New York City, but a lot of the big cities, uh, a lot of crime in America, a lot of lawlessness. So he talks about the crime concerns of the 80s and 90s, the inflation worries of the 70s, the nuclear threat of the 60s, the immigration fear of the 2000s. Right. Adding to that a worldwide pandemic and racial strife. So Mark Penn talks about this perfect storm of all these fears. They're hitting all at once in all these different areas. And he says Americans are filled with worry, filled with anxiety, filled with fear. So the one, the, the one that concerns me the most out of all these Obviously, uh, COVID did, especially in the early days. Not sure what that would bring to me, to the nation, to my church. Uh, But that has lessened quite a bit uh, in my heart. But the one that concerns me the most is the inflation economy. That concerns me the most right now. That worries me the most. That concerns me the most. What what are we, 30 trillion in debt? 30 trillion dollars in debt. That is amazing, isn't it? I mean, what does the future have in store? Can we turn this thing around? Uh, anyway, of those, of those that I listed, nuclear threat, you know, because there's war with Russia, so the nuclear threat, Iran might get a nuclear weapon, inflation, crime, immigration fears, COVID, this worldwide pandemic. Which one of those causes you the most concern you can just shout out shout it out causes you the most concern the most worry this is audience participation of the lost people of that of the one the list i gave you what is that children what the children are being taught in school, I didn't even mention that. But yes, that's very concerning, you know, this, uh, the critical race theory, the transgenderism. You know, is this going to produce what we think it's going to? Well, oh my gosh. You know, we sent our children to public school, 
And if I had children right now, you know, I'm not sure I would send them to public school. I'd really have to pray a lot about that. Uh, anyway, I know I, I totally get that. Anybody else? What? What they're not teaching concerns you. What they're taking out of everything. Anybody else? Anybody concerned about inflation or the economy? Anybody concerned about nuclear war? Some are. Anybody concerned about the COVID pandemic? Nobody. The pandemic that concerns you? Well, it took you down pretty bad. Yes. Yes. Transmitted in the air? What do they have? Airplanes flying over our houses or something? Drop like dress, uh, yeah, makes me wonder. Right. Makes you wonder? Yeah. Okay, well, we need to talk after church, okay? We just <laughs> anyway, but I know you caught a bad case of the COVID. I, I was at a minister's fellowship yesterday, and uh, uh, Dave Tarsia, uh, he came over from Canada. The border now is open if you're vaccinated. So he was able to come to the fellowship, and he's an, an elderly man, uh, and uh, he got COVID really bad. And uh, the doctors were talking to him about uh, getting his affairs in order. Uh, it was an evening, and they came into his room, and they said, if you are not improved by morning, you're going on a vent, and we'll only leave you on that vent for two weeks. If you want to say anything to your wife, call her tonight. Well, so he called his wife, Diane, and uh, he said, please pray. Please pray. And uh, she prayed over the phone for him. And uh, he felt God touching him throughout the night. And morning came, and he'd made such progress overnight that they didn't put him on a vent. And eventually he recovered, and he was able to go home. And now he's at a ministerial fellowship. He said, man, I was so close to death from this COVID because it got deep into his lungs. You know, it really became a disease. And uh, now he's at the minister fellowship and he's thanking God. And, and he said, do you know why the Lord spared me? And I said, no, tell me. He said, because we've been in the same house for 52 years. And he wanted me to clean it out before I depart. <laughs> I was hoping it'd be something a little greater or more purposeful than that. But that's what he was talking about. So Barna Group released their latest survey on the well-being of pastors, finding that the number of pastors who are seriously considering leaving full-time ministry sits at 42%. This number has increased 13 percentage points since January of 2021, when 29% of pastors were considered quitting ministry. Among pastors who have considered leaving full-time ministry, the top three reasons that have influenced their thinking are the immense stress of the job, feeling lonely and isolated, and current political division. But they, you know, they just polled pastors, ministers, 42% of those polled said they are considering leaving full-time ministry because of stress, anxiety, troubles, Right? Division. Now, we mentioned John 14, 27, that God promises supernatural peace. In John 16, 33, Jesus says this. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So we know that God's promises of peace is his, ultimately his presence. 
He is our peace, right? He is our peace. But he says, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. So when you hear that, these things I have spoken to you. What is that? What does that stir up in your mind? These things I have spoken to you that you may have peace. According to that, what brings peace to our heart? That's right. These things that I have spoken to you. So it's the presence of God that brings you peace, the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus. But it's also the word of God that brings you peace. We know that faith comes by hearing the word of God, right? These things I have spoken to you. So listen, if you, if you have worry and anxiety and we all face it, man, get in the presence of God in worship. Get in the presence of God in prayer. Realize that he's with you, the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. But also get in the word of God. Let the promises of God speak to your heart. Let what the Bible says about God give you peace. A lot of times we have great worry because our God is too small. Our God is too small. The, the way we think about God, our faith in God is too small. God is big enough, strong enough, loving enough, and wise enough to answer us and to solve our problems and to see us through. You agree with that? Say amen to that. All right, very good. God promises his faithfulness, Right? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Faithful. So God is faithful to his promises, so we can hold fast our confession of hope. I believe God. All things will turn for good. The Lord is my healer. God is my savior. God is my provider. I could hold fast because God is faithful who promised. So all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. We can hold fast to them. Worry is essentially a control issue. We can't control our children, so we worry about our children. We can't control the future, so we worry about the future. Worry is stewing without doing. Stewing without doing. Well, Dan Ryland writes this about worry. He says you need to wage war on worry. So Pastor Dan writes this. It's difficult to develop faith when you worry because they are contradictory concepts. Boy, that's true, isn't it? It's hard to be full of faith when you're full of worry. (laughs) Worry is focused on something undesirable that might happen while faith is focused on the potential for a positive outcome based on God's provision. Worry zaps us of physical and emotional energy. It'll drain you, won't it? Mm. Worry is like leaving your flashlight on. The battery that was designed to last for a long time with normal usage is completely drained in a couple of days. Likewise, worry drains your personal battery, your inner strength, in a very short time. My mom was one of the best worriers I've ever seen. She was a professional worrier. My, my mom, she, I wouldn't say she loved to worry, but man, she just entered into it. She didn't try to control it. It was part of her mothering instinct. Well, I always joked as a kid that she slept with her eyes open. 
And I remember as a little boy, you know, I, I'd get afraid in my room or maybe I wasn't feeling well. And then I'd, I'd go from my room to my parents' bedroom and, and I'd go and I would just tap my mom to wake her up to, so she could help me. And uh, seriously, this is how she would wake up every time. I'd go in there, and my dad would be snoring. My mom would be sound asleep. And I'd tap my mom on the shoulder, and literally she'd go, this, what, what, what? You know, because he's just right on the verge, right on the verge. And then when I became a teenager, and uh, I'd break curfew a lot. We had a midnight curfew, and I'd roll in 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. And, and I'd walk in, and she'd always be awake. She'd call to me from the bedroom. Tim, are you okay? You got in late. You know we don't approve of that. Are you all right? We're going to talk about this in the morning. Couldn't pull anything on her because she slept with her eyes open. She just worried, worried. And worry is essentially a control issue. Do you agree with that statement? Control issue. Those things are out of your control. That's what you tend to worry about. Well, think about it. Almost everything is out of your control. So we're children of God. Are they out of God's control? Well, obviously they're not. My wife ministered on Mother's Day, and she talked about the sovereignty of God, and she read, I think, two or three verses that talked about how God is in control and oversees all things, and heaven is his throne, and earth is its footstool, and he does according to his will on this earth, and... uh, Thank God that God's in control, right? So we don't have to, the way I look at it is this, we do not have to worry about a nuclear war because God is in control. The king's heart belongs to God. There might be madmen out there, but the Lord can stop them, redirect them, change their mind, order their steps so that it will all work out according to his plan. Now, his plan might be greater than what we can perceive and understand and might have a lot of trials and challenges in it. But to me, it should give us a sense of rest and peace knowing that it's not men that are making the decisions ultimately, but rather the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God, the providence of God, God's in control. Does that bear witness in your spirit? It should. We trust in an invisible God. To trust God, you must understand his character. The heart of God is his compassion, his love for you. We need to understand that God deeply loves us. He cares for us. He is good towards us. All things that come into our life pass through his loving hands. Ultimately, all things work together for good for us because of his great love for us. The hand of God is his omnipotence, his power towards us. No matter how big the giant or big the mountain or deep the valley or large the wave or strong the wind of adversity, no matter what it might be, God's power is able to still the storm, to remove the mountain to defeat the giant, to solve the issue, to get us through to the other side. Out of love for us, the hand of God, the heart of God, his power towards us, the mind of God is his omniscience, his knowledge of us, his knowledge of us. 
Trusting God with your life is the cure for worry. Okay, so I got this illustration. Four by men were trying to describe an elephant. And sometimes, you know, the only way we can really know God is by the Spirit and in the Word. And so here's these guys, these blind guys, they're trying to describe the elephant. So the first blind man grabs the elephant's leg, and he says this, the elephant is like a tree trunk. The second blind man grabs the elephant's tail, and so the elephant is like a rope. You see, they don't see clearly. The third blind man grabs the elephant's ear and says, the elephant is like a big leaf. And the fourth blind man grabs the elephant's trunk and says, the elephant is like a fire hose. Well, obviously, they were all wrong because they're blind. They're just trying to feel and describe. Well, before we're saved, we're blind. We don't know God. And then we get saved, our eyes are open. And God comes and lives inside of us. And then he begins to reveal himself to us. We realize He loves us. He cares for us. He's wise. He's good. He's compassionate. He's holy. He's righteous. And then we began to read the word and we began to understand the ways of God and the person of God. And then the gospels is God in the flesh. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And we really get a clear picture of what God is like by looking at the person of Jesus. How he talked to people, how he ministered, what he prioritized, what he cared about, the stories he told, his, his, his personal relationships, uh, you know, uh, his power to heal, his compassion to move on uh, behalf of people. And he realized that's what our God is like. And so understanding God... We begin the journey when we get saved, and then it's a lifelong journey, isn't it? It's a lifelong journey. That's why you read the Bible over and over again, because it's a lifelong journey. When I would read the Bible when I was first saved, I would get so much out of it. But now when I read the Bible, I get so much more out of it, because it's it's an inspired book, and it's a very deep book. And he, he continues to reveal deeper and deeper things about himself. He shows us his ways. He reveals his acts. He takes what we're going through and applies scripture to it. And so the Bible actually becomes a living book. You guys agree with that? It's alive. And it speaks to us. And it's part of changing us. But the only way we can overcome worry is if we're trusting in God. And so we have to learn about God. And we learn about God by walking with him daily, obeying him as he leads us, reading his word and learning about the character of God, the good things of God. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Everybody believe that God is greater and bigger than our own understanding? You guys agree with that, right? Absolutely. So when we read the scriptures, and it tells us about God, and the Spirit of God quickens it to us, he's quickening it 
quickening it to our understanding. And our understanding is very limited, but we can understand the things of God through the Spirit of God as we read the Word of God. We can, but it's a limited understanding. So, how can I best illustrate this? I've had three dogs in my life. Three dogs in my life. Mutsy, that's the dog I grew up with. Mutsy was a beagle German Shepherd mix. Great dog, smart dog. Uh, teach it all kinds of tricks, loyal dog, great family dog, and, uh, but it had some beagle in it, so twice a year, it would take off. Be gone for a week or two, and then come back after about two weeks, you know, it just wants to run, just wants to run, but normally it's a fa- great family dog, loved Mutsy. Mutsy was a very smart dog. Then the second dog I had, we got uh, for my parents. It was their anniversary, and my mom and dad always joked that they would love a St. Bernard. And it was a joke, but my sister and I, we decided, well, we're going to buy them a St. Bernard. And so they lived in a, a, you know, it was just a ranch, and uh, the lot was somewhat small. And uh, they were empty nesters at the time. No, no, I was still living at home. I was in high school. And so my sister and I went out, and uh, we we bought them a purebred St. Bernard puppy. And they, I remember we had him close her eyes, which is crazy, right? Had him close her eyes, and we brought the dog in, and we sat in the middle of the family room and said, open your eyes. And they looked at this little fur ball of a St. Bernard, so cute, and my dad said, ah, come here, Bernie. So Bernie was the name of that dog, Bernie, St. Bernard. The only problem is it was inbred, had an enlarged heart, only lived four years. But that dog was dumb. The dog was dumb. <laughs> you know, I, you could teach it a couple tricks, and that's about it. It was a dumb dog. Mutsy was a smart dog. Bernie was a dumb dog. Then the third dog we got, we got for our children. We wanted them to know what it's like as kids to have a dog. And so we went out to, uh, oh, it was someplace in Howell, and some store, big box store. At the back of the store, they were selling dogs. And we bought Teddy for $20, I think. And Teddy was Collie Lab Mix. Never a dog shed as much as this dog. But Teddy was a smart dog. Teddy was a smart dog. So I had two smart dogs and one real dumb dog. Teddy was a great family dog. And we had Teddy for 16 years. Becomes part of the family, right? Anyway, so those are my three dogs. And two were smart. One was dumb. Now, dog thoughts are different than human thoughts. Last week, I read the story, the children's story, of the ugly duckling. Anybody ever read the ugly duckling? The mama duckling that that was hatched the eggs, and uh, they came out as little tiny ducks, but the the last egg, uh, what didn't hatch right away, this egg was a little bit bigger, looked a little bit different than the regular duck eggs, and uh, after a couple days, it hatches, and it's a gray a gray bird, and the other ducklings were like a yellowish-orange. And they just thought this bird was so ugly. It was the ugly duckling. And then we know the story. The ugly duckling is floating around in the, in the lake, and it's all alone. It's kicked out. And it's just all by itself. And it looks up, and it sees beautiful swans flying overhead. And the ugly duckling is saying, man, that is the most beautiful bird that there is. I, I want to be a bird just like that. Well, I'll make a long story even shorter. 
the next year it finds itself in that lake floating around. It's all alone. And here comes some swans coming in by formation right towards it. And the ugly duckling was so aware of its own ugliness and unworthiness that it wanted to hide from these swans because the swans were going to land and make fun of this ugly duckling. Well, as the birds were coming in and landing all around it, the, the, the ugly duckling just bowed in great humility and saw a reflection of a beautiful swan in the lake. What in the world? And then all of a sudden it realized, that's a reflection of me. The ugly duckling was actually a swan. Turn it to a beautiful swan. So I'm telling you that for this reason. <laughs> yeah, it's a children's story, right? It's a children's story. And uh, the meeting is pretty obvious and things like this. I understand it. But if I read that story to my dogs, because they're, they're, they're man thoughts, man thoughts. If I read that to the dumb dog, Bernie, the smart dog, Mutsi, or the other smart dog, Mutsi, would any one of them understand that story? No, because they're dogs. They have dog thoughts. They do not have human thoughts. They do not have the ability to understand man thoughts or human thoughts because they think like a dog. Now, listen to this scripture. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the spirit means. Do you believe that you need the Holy Spirit to teach you about God? Why? Because you speak, you you just think man thoughts. And the Bible says, my thoughts are not your thoughts nor your ways, my ways, says the Lord. And so the, this, the scriptures are written in the, in, in, to where we can read it, but they're inspired, they're God thoughts. And the Bible says that before we're saved or made alive by the Spirit of God, we're like a dog trying to understand the story of the ugly duckling. We just don't have the ability to understand the thoughts that are in this book because they are spiritually discerned. We need a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. We need a Holy Spirit to open up our eyes to perceive what's in here. I I was raised going to church every Sunday and every holy day of obligation. My parents took me to the Mass, and, uh, you know, the Gospels were read, and other passages of Scripture were read, and the prayers were prayed. We'd sing the hymns. uh, uh, We'd go up and take communion, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and all that. You know, I... I went, I went to Catholic school. When we weren't going to Catholic school, they'd send me to CCD classes uh, to learn, to be taught. And I did not get it. I did not understand it. I did not receive it. I knew about it. But how it applied to me, my spirit was dead. My understanding was darkened. The Bible says our eyes are blinded. If you would have talked to me, I would have said, I'm good. I'm on my way to heaven. 
because I'm a good guy and God will weigh my good works with my bad works. That's my understanding of, of getting into heaven. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And then all of a sudden I get saved. And it's like lights come on. I know God. God is real. I'd read the Bible and it would speak to me. The Holy Spirit would apply it to my life. He would show me things about God. I, my heart now is inclined towards the Lord. I, I now have holy affections. I, I can pray. When I pray, I feel like heaven is open to me and God is speaking to me. And I'm speaking to God. and He's just right there and he lives on the inside of me. That's my testimony. Is that your testimony? That's what happens. And so if you're going to overcome worry, defeat the giant of worry, you got to know God. you got to grow in your understanding of God. And the Holy Spirit will help you. So we're not blind men trying to describe an elephant by touching this or this or that. We're not like a dog trying to understand a story written for people. But we're born again of the Spirit of God. We're children of God. And now we can understand God. We can know God. We can apply what we learn to our lives. We can trust the Lord. Amen? So what does God know? Listen to this. In Psalm 147, it says this. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. So the Bible says two things. That God counts the number of the stars. And number two, he calls them all by name. I have trouble with names. I have trouble remembering names. You guys have trouble with that? He knows how many stars are out there, and he calls them all by name. So I was doing some study about the stars, and they say that there are 10 times more stars than grains of sand in this earth. 10 times more stars in the heavens than grains of sand. They say that there are upwards to 200 billion galaxies in the universe. And in the universe, there are 300 sextillion stars. That is three followed by 23 zeros. That's a lot of stars. That's a lot of stars. He knows how many. He can count that high. And it's always changing, right? I mean, you got the shooting star, the exploding star, you know, all that. Uh, so the number is always changing. And who knows how big the universe is? We don't have the telescope to reach. There might be 300 billion galaxies. What ours is the Milky Way galaxy. And the Bible says he calls them all by name. 23 sextillion stars. And he calls them all by name. So he counts them. And he knows them by name. So what does this say about God and you? What does this say about God and you? He knows you. He knows you by name. He's intimately acquainted with you. So we shouldn't have to worry, right? Because God is, his eyes are on us. He knows us. We're not lost. We're not just another number. He knows us, and he knows us by name. The Bible tells us in Luke 12, verse 7, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. 
Do not fear, therefore, for you are more valuable than many sparrows. So the very hairs of your head are all numbered. The average head has 100,000 hairs on it. Now, Jerry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. The average head has 100,000 hairs on it. There are 7.8 billion people in the world. That means there are 780 trillion hairs on people's heads. He counts it all. He counts it all. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, Nate. I'm sorry. My, you know, so, so God, every time a baby is born, God counts the hairs. Somebody dies, he subtracts that. We're guys, and so you're, we're, our hair is falling out or our hair is thinning. I know mine certainly is. And so the number is always in flux, but because of God's omniscience, he knows these things. And he knows how many hairs are on your head. So what does that tell you about God and you? Once again, he's intimately acquainted with you. Amen? He knows you. He's involved. He's looking down. I had a friend of mine, uh, uh, he started losing his hair, and he'd wake up in the morning, and he'd find hair all over his pillow. Now, I've never done that. But he'd find hair all over his pillow because it just starts falling out. And so God, during the night, is well aware of how many hairs are falling out on that man's pillow. And he's keeping it right because he's just right there. He's just right there. Think about it like a mom and dad, and you bring home that firstborn child, and man, you're just, you just watch it. You, I remember we, we had Hannah in the room with us the first three nights. We brought her home from the hospital. She's in the room. She's in a little, was that a bassinet? Is that what that's called? bassinet and we'd she'd be sleeping and I literally had trouble sleeping because I'd make sure she was still breathing I'd listen for her just to breathe she okay okay she okay I'd lay awake making sure she's still breathing because she meant that much to me and I remember uh, then as she got a little older, we put her in her own room, and she had a crib, and uh, we put her down, and uh, she'd finally fall asleep. And I still remember my wife and I would sneak into the room, and we'd look over the crib, be as quiet as we can. We didn't want to wake her up. Hannah was a, a pill, man. She'd just cry over everything. Didn't want to wake her up. And so we'd look it over, and we'd just watch her sleep. Just so amazed that she was ours. Our little girl. Just so in love with this, so aware of her, so much attention focused on her. We found such joy in her. The Bible tells us that God's just like that. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. I think, is it Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17 that tells us that? Let me see if I can find that passage of scripture. Zephaniah chapter 3. So when you're sleeping at night, the Lord is just... Think of you as his child. He's just looking down from heaven, and he's just watching you and rejoicing in you. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, little tiny book. Zephaniah 3, there it is. Yes. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. 
So God is rejoicing over you with his gladness. He is rejoicing over you. with He is singing about you. Rejoicing concerning you. He just loves you so much. Therefore, we don't need to worry because God cares for us. Amen? He really cares for us. So think about that 100,000 hairs. Brother Steve, think about that 100,000 hairs. God knows the thoughts of every person in the world. Psalm 94 verse 11, the Lord knows the thoughts of man. God knows your words before you speak them. Psalm 139 verse 4, you know what I'm going to say even before I say it. God knows the babies in the womb. This is good for us right now as they consider Roe v. Wade, right? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you and I named you a prophet in the nations, to the nations. That means even before you were conceived, God had plans and purposes for you. And the scripture tells us that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And that's the sanctity of life, the value of life. We're made in the image of God. And uh, life begins at conception, right? And that's what we believe as Christians. That's what we believe the Bible says says concerning uh, babies in the womb and conceiving. And uh, uh, Psalm 139 is a great psalm that deals with all this. There's an interesting passage of Scripture. It's in the Old Testament law. I think it's in the book of Leviticus. And uh, I believe that the Bible teaches capital punishment, but also the Bible teaches the sanctity of life, even life in a mother's womb. So you can put, I I believe that the Bible says you can put a first-degree murderer to death, the state can, executing justice, that this is taught in the scripture, but also that you're not to put to death an unborn child. And there's a verse in the Old Testament, it's in the law, where it talks about how if a man is arguing or gets in a fight with a woman and he kills her unborn child, he then is to be put to death. That one verse speaks about capital punishment, life for life, and also that the unborn child is a life that was taken away by that act of murder. So right there you have the sanctity of life and also capital punishment taught in one verse. Because, I'm bringing this up, is because they tell you that you're not pro-life if you believe in capital punishment but you're anti-abortion. And the Bible is just the opposite. The Bible says it teaches both, and it teaches it in one verse. And so don't buy into that argument. Don't let that, that, that get you. You can believe that those that are guilty of first-degree murder are to be put to death by the state and also believe that you're not supposed to take the life of an innocent, unborn child. You guys tracking me with that? Let God be true, and every man a liar, right? God knows the future. All right, let's read this verse, these verses. And uh, this talks about how Jesus, you know, he was God in the flesh, and so he understood how everything was going to play out. 
And so this is a story of him getting that last Passover meal set up. And it says this in Mark chapter 14. He sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, so this is Jerusalem, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. So how did Jesus know that? Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared there make ready for, and prepared there make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he said to them and they prepared the Passover. This is the ability of Jesus Christ to understand what was going to happen in the future. And that it was all going to fall out according to his plan. These two disciples were going to go into that city and they're going to meet a man carrying a pitcher of water. Which men, in that culture, that was women's work. So it would be very odd or strange to find a man carrying water. Because that's what women do. But Jesus knew they'd find this man. And that this man would take him to a house. And that if they would say these words to the owner of that house, that he would have a large upper room. And also that it would be fully furnished. And that the master of this house would be okay to let them use it for Passover. I mean, Jesus just knew all that was going to happen. All that was going to happen. So that tells me we can trust God for our today and also for our tomorrow. Because God knows the future. God plans the future. God providentially oversees our life and all the events that will happen. And uh, we don't have to be so controlling to make sure we're doing everything perfectly lest we make a mistake and ruin something. God is in control. You can trust God. If, I mean, think about this. If you're looking for a job, then you know that God can lead you to a certain way. He can take you to that site. You can meet that particular person. God can grant you favor in their sight. And he can open a door that was previously shut. Or you think that that's the job for you. And it's not the job for you, but you think it's the job for you. All of a sudden, God can... Cause that man that you think is certainly going to hire you, all of a sudden he no longer has favor towards you, his heart is closed towards you, and a door that was seemingly open is now shut. He opens doors and closes doors. He turns hearts, he controls events, he orders our steps, he brings about divine appointments. God's in control. So we can relax in that. We can Rest in that. We can trust God in that. Amen? Amen? Because God sees the future, we can trust him. But God more than just sees the future. Certainly he does that. He's omniscient. He can look down, as they say, to the tunnel of time and see everything that's happening. Certainly. But God also plans and purposes your future. He's intimately involved in your days to come. Your days to come are not just simply God looking down and saying, oh, I see that all this is going to happen to Cindy. It's just all going to happen that way. I, I see it. All right, well, good luck to you. 
No, Cindy belongs to God. You belong to God. God has plans for your life, purposes for your life. He is getting you where he needs to get you to bring this blessing and work this, uh, this purpose and accomplish this in your life. And he's planning out your life. And God knows what's going to happen because he is planning it. Lovingly planning it. Lovingly planning it. Right? Aren't we predestined in love? That's what the Bible says. Predestined in love. Always remember, it's not fate. It's not luck. It's not chance. It's God's loving purpose. Paul says this, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. He's beseeching them that God is merciful. Some people are afraid to give their life to God because they think God is going to ruin it. But is God a good God? A loving and a merciful God? And Paul understood that. He says, I beseech you, present yourself to God. Now I beseech you, not by God's wrath or by God's carelessness, but I beseech you by the mercies of God. Somebody say amen to that. All right. Well, one of the great things we can do is we can turn our worry into worship. Our worry into worship. So I asked Brother uh, Rob if he would lead us in a worship song. Here he comes. What song did you choose? My King Forever. He's going to lead us in this. So let's all stand. And uh, let's just worship God. Magnify the Lord. And as you do, if you're worried or anxious about anything, just give it to God. Can you do that? Just worship the Lord and lay it down at his feet and bless the name of the Lord. That sound good? Amen? Okay. All praise to the Lord most high. All praise to the one who saved my life. All praise to Jesus Christ, High King of Heaven, my King forever. 